imagine if you could overhear private, unfiltered conversations between the world's most influential and inspirational women. Now you can. Welcome to Leadership Global, where you'll hear from inspiring leaders who will help you define your vision, grow your leadership, expand your influence, and increase your impact to leave a lasting legacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Lead Hership Global. We are so glad to have all of you with us today. And I got to tell you, today is extra special because we have Paula Schneider, President and CEO of Susan G. Komen, with us to talk about leaving a legacy, thinking through your end goal as you begin to create and build your career. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, and I cannot tell you how pleased and honored I am to have Paula Schneider with us. Now, you know, we all seek fulfillment in our careers. It's really the difference between work life and doing life's work. But I would really recommend that we all really think through what our life's work is. Don't risk becoming lost somewhere in your career journey after achieving some of your biggest career goals simply because they're not aligned with your life's work. Never stop questioning your decision and the path that you're on for your career. You should always continue to question your previous decisions and if where you are, and what you're doing with your life makes you truly happy. How do you want to live your life today? To leave a legacy in which you'll be remembered for generations to come or simply to meet your bills? Is your life currently aligned with the legacy you want to leave or do you need to start making some changes today? I got to tell you, there is no one that is better to help us think through some of these big questions than Paula Schneider, Today, we're going to discuss how to leave a meaningful legacy through a lifetime of work with Paula, the president and CEO of Susan G. Komen. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Paula. She is an absolute powerhouse. As I noted, she is the president and CEO of Susan G. Komen, a nonprofit organization that saves lives from breast cancer by investing in breakthrough research, public policy advocacy, and through a whole suite of patient support efforts, helping people facing breast cancer in communities all across the country. However, before taking the very top role in this powerhouse philanthropy, Paula served as president and CEO of several fashion businesses, including American Apparel, BCBG Max Azaria, Laundry by Shelley Seagal, uh, Warnico's Designer Swimwear, which is includes Speedo and licensees Calvin Klein, Nautica, Michael Kors, and more. So as you can see, Paula has had a multifaceted career, an impressive journey that spans education, fashion, fashion retail, and culminates in her position today leading one of the most influential and prominent nonprofits in the world, Susan G. Komen. Today, we're going to dive into how to design a career with the end in mind. Paula, thank you so much for joining us today. Wow. I'm leaving a legacy. (laughs) I'm not leaving it yet, though. I still have a long way to go. 
I'd say that's true too. Now, in full disclosure, I must tell our listeners today that I had the great pleasure and privilege of reporting to Paula at Susan G. Komen. So I have firsthand knowledge of the powerful leadership that Paula offers. So Paula, tell us a little bit about your journey from your vantage point and how you identified your life's work and began navigating your way towards that end goal. Um, I had spent 30 plus years in the apparel sector, in the fashion sector, and running retail stores, um, doing wholesale designing, manufacturing, all aspects of that world. And during the course of it, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And for me, my mom had died of breast cancer, but she, she didn't die until after my diagnosis. And then she got it back again, and then she passed away. Um, and my brother has um, since passed of prostate cancer. And my sister had melanoma, but she's okay. So sort of a cornerstone of our world is, is cancer, which is not great, but it is what it is and you have to deal with it. And so you move on. I wouldn't be sitting in this chair if I hadn't had that life experience. And it was, it was one of those moments, it was sort of a defining moment because people always ask, how did you move from work, working in the apparel and the, and the retail sector into philanthropy? And for me, it was, um, you know, sort of a, a by chance thing that happened. I was at a um, women in retail conference and it was a really fun conference because they have it in Miami beach. It's, it's, you know, fun time that they had there. There's great swag bags. There's all kinds of reasons for me to go, but I was also being honored as one of the top female retailers in the country. And I had breakfast with a friend of mine that I just randomly ran into there. Uh, and that morning, and she and I both had conversations about whether or not we wanted to stay in this field and how meaningful it was or not. And for me, I could give a rat's ass if I sold one more pair of jeans to Bloomingdale's. At that point, I was the um, CEO of Seven for All Mankind and Splendid and Ella Moss, all great brands. And, you know, it was, it was, they were doing well, everything was thriving. And I um, literally though was thinking, okay, I really, I just, I can do this and I do it well, but I don't care. I don't, I don't feel it. And I said that to her at breakfast that I think I'm going to have to do something a little bit more meaningful. Then I got up. Uh, we, after breakfast, we went in. I gave my speech, my acceptance speech for my award. And when uh, I, I talked about empowerment, which was, of course, the theme, it's a women's conference, you know, it wasn't the most in, in, in intellectually stimulating theme, but it was the theme. So I got up and started to speak about how I was the most empowered when I was the least physically powerful when I had breast cancer, because there's sort of a grace in understanding that you have to be able to accept help from people. And when you're used to being large and in charge, it's really hard. So um, I, I finished my speech. I was very humbled by getting the award. And I sat down again next to my friend that I had breakfast with, as opposed to my own table and my own people, which in and of itself is very odd. But I just felt like I wanted to sit next to her and chat with her some more because we hadn't had a time to, to see each other much. And during the course of that, then she, she said to me when I sat down, okay, look what I just got on my phone. And it's from a recruiter in Dallas that is looking for the, a new CEO of Susan G. Komen. Would you ever be interested in that? And I said, yes, I would. And it literally took that long. It didn't take that. And it, I had to make that decision at that point, if I really was actually going to go for this, that I had to quit my job. And it was a lucrative job. It was, you know, it was fine. 
Um, but on Thursday, I got this Friday, I decided that I was going to try and go for this on Monday, I quit my job. And because you can't really look for work when you're running a publicly traded company, you know, you, you, I just think that there's a lack of integrity if you do that. And that wasn't going to be me. And so I uh, interviewed and got the job. And I remember telling the board of directors, look, you know, I think I'd be great at this, but I've never been in philanthropy before. And if, if you find someone else that you think would be better, you need to hire them because I have two grown daughters. And for me, the most important thing in the world is keeping them safe. But it's been the greatest career pivot that you could ever imagine. And I have enjoyed doing this uh, so much more than most any other. Well, it's the best role that I've ever had for me. But I wouldn't do it if I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't been diagnosed with breast cancer. So sometimes life intercedes. Yeah. And that's such a, a wonderful point is that there are times when life intercedes and you become awakened to your life's purpose. And all of a sudden that becomes really clear for you exactly how you want to spend the rest of your career mm -hmm. in a more meaningful or purposeful way. So in this case, you identified your life's work from a very personal mm -hmm. circumstance um, yeah. being diagnosed with breast cancer and then through serendipity, which is a defining theme in your life, <laughs> you were given the opportunity to take the helm of one of the most influential and powerful breast cancer nonprofits in the world, which is remarkable. But as you began reflecting um, through the navigation of your work experiences in fashion, were there ever times where you began to sort of visualize what it is that you wanted to do from your work experience to incorporate your life's work into your business? Yeah, it's going to sound very shallow, but I really like what well, I was working as a teacher and I wasn't intrinsically motivated to do it. I loved teaching. I thought it was super fun. I only did it for one year, um, but I, I thought it was great fun, but I couldn't make enough to make a living. And so I decided that, you know, I, I, in order to me, in order to make ends meet while I was a teacher, I um, worked at a clothing store and then I started doing some buying for the clothing store. And then I traveled to LA, which was, you know, I was living in Northern California at the time and I traveled to LA and I thought this was the most dashing and, and fabulous existence to be in fashion all the time and to um, just be in, in integrated into that world where people went on vacation to Paris and places like that. And I was young and impressionable. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And so I decided that I would do that. And it really had more to do with financial stability than anything else. My father had passed away when I was 20 and I had just finished um, college when I was 22 and uh, or 21. And I, really felt that I wanted to have something that was stable in my life, you know, and teaching was my backup plan because I had a degree in design and it was costume design and theater. And where are you going to get a job doing that? And so and then when I finished teaching, I thought, you know, this isn't going to be for me either. And I just decided that I would make this move. And I had the opportunity through working at a store to see this other world. So I made that that pivot and that big change and ended up going down, moving to LA and from Chico, which is where I went to college and where I taught. And um, in Northern California, it's a little college town that was actually known for the biggest party school in the nation, which was my criteria for going there in the first place. So, hey, it, it <laughs> did its job. 
so I moved down to LA and, and started in this field and worked there for about, worked for a company for about a year and a half before I decided that I should open my own business. And another big step, but you know, when you're young and you have no fear is when you should actually do these sorts of things. And I, I really don't have much fear at any point in my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken a lot of the jobs that I've taken. Um, but I had the opportunity to uh, start my own business. I borrowed $5,000 and and literally it was, you know, do or die because I wanted to name my business A Girl's Gotta Eat, um, but, you know, decided that that, uh, that wasn't probably as appropriate as it needed to be. And so I started an independent repping firm for manufacturers rep where I would, they would give me their clothing lines and I would show it to stores and take orders and then they'd manufacture it and then I would pay, I'd get a commission. And one of the lines that I started with, not actually didn't start with, but shortly thereafter was BCBG. And I sold their first dress. And uh, then, you know, when I started to do really well with it because we developed it, um, the more money you make in commission, the less likely you are to keep the line because then at that point they don't need to, they don't want to have a multi-line rep. They want to open their own showrooms. So ultimately when I started making real money, I knew that my business was going to be, you know, in trouble because 80% of all my revenue came in from one source, which was BCBG at the time. And um, so I ended up actually going and working corporately for them. And that was sort of the real launch of my fashion career, you know, so to speak, because we went from, I think, zero to 200 million. And, you know, it was, it was a, in a 13 year time frame, and but it was super fun because, you know, we, we, none of us knew anything and we taught ourselves everything. Um, we, we, you know, we literally named all of the dress styles after perfume when we, because between Max, who owned the company and my showroom, he'd walk by a perfume store every day and then he'd say, OK, I'm going to call that dress on a East and that one Chanel and that one's, you know, <laughs> you know, Shalimar, you know, we had them all. So and then you had to really, oh, wait, we need actual numbers in order for department stores to be able to buy. OK, let's give them numbers. I mean, that's how it was. It was, you know, one of those great really fun times in your life if you're lucky enough to have something that's super entrepreneurial and really fun and you know we built it from from scratch and i i learned so much about being fearless at that point because again a girl's got to eat so once you realize that that's the case then you you work really really hard because there was no plan b no fallback plan and i owed what was a colossal amount of money for this five thousand dollars for my start yeah, that's fascinating. And I got to tell you, part of the fun, I think, probably comes from the enormous success you've had. Um, moving from, you know, college where you studied costume design into all these little pivots within the fashion industry mm -hmm. to create such enormous success is remarkable. And so there does seem to be this linear path between studying costume design and moving into fashion. But even within that industry, you made lots of, of changes in the direction that you were leading from sales channels to product categories to corporate cultures. Your time in that industry was comprised of a lot of different diverse yeah. experiences, um, including working with many founder-led organizations, right? Yeah. In fashion. Yeah. So what were some of the key learnings as you move forward in your career during that phase of your career in fashion? 
I'd say, you know, I sort of blocked my career in fashion in three parts, right? There was the entrepreneurial part, which was completely and totally entrepreneurial from starting my own um, business to working for Max. And, and together during that time, I had my business for almost four or five years and um, he was a part of it, right? Because, and, and then I became a corporate citizen, if you will, for working for another person, working for another company. And then that was my entrepreneurial, like completely entrepreneurial time. And then there was the operational side, right? So then I left and I went and um, ran uh, Laundry by Shelly Siegel. And that was sort of a turnaround. Um, you know, they had had, they were starting to see losses, et cetera. And I didn't know how to do turnarounds, but I knew that you had to be scrappy. So I created the, you know, the turnaround strategy. And then once you do a turnaround, then people think, oh, well, they're really good at turnarounds. And then you get stuck in a lot of turnarounds, which are not easy because, you know, it's always easier for a growth story than it is a turnaround story. But it's also, you know, the, the, idea of getting um, jobs as presidents or CEOs of fashion companies, a lot of times, you know, was still very early on in the career and there were way more men than women. And, you know, women would take jobs that were much more difficult to do because they weren't being offered the, you know, the fantastically plum jobs. So you took what you got, right? And if you wanted to be in play in that arena, that's what you had to do. So I think, you know, there are, there's all of these statistics about women that go into turnarounds Right. And then what happens as CEOs is that after the companies have turned around, then there's usually a man that will come in and run it. So it is breaking glass ceilings. So I had I had the opportunity to work in turnarounds for quite a while and understand how that works. Um, then I parlayed that into working in private equity, buying companies um, and worked. I worked as a senior advisor for a, a company called the Gorris Group, which was great learning for me. They were not. They were usually in telecom and, and tech, and they were not in consumer goods. And so they brought me in to sort of help them figure out their consumer um, strategy, especially in fashion. And I was like the house guest that didn't go home. I stayed there. You know, I came in to work on a project, um, which was actually when they were trying to buy BCBG. And it was many years after I'd left BCBG, but of course I knew a lot about it because I had helped build it. Uh, and. Then I, you know, they didn't end up buying that, but I stayed there for three years and became the, uh, the CEO of one of their portfolio companies. They had 52, I think, portfolio companies, and I was the first female CEO. So that was, you know, an, a nice glass ceiling to break, um, but interesting. And um, it was a really interesting time. And I learned a tremendous amount during that time on presentational skills and what it takes to present a plan and get buy-in. And because these were mostly distressed businesses that they were working in, and um, in, and that was sort of their area of expertise is, is getting a distressed business and then bringing in people that could run it better or augment it or whatever the case may be. So they had a whole operational arm and I was part of that operational arm. So it was really, it was an interesting time. I learned a ton. Um, Again, other than me, there was like literally the the assistants that all looked like fabulous models. But, you know, <laughs> it was a male dominant oriented um, business to be sure, you know, and most private equity still is. Uh, and then from there, I had the opportunity to go into American Apparel, which was literally um, the biggest bucket of crazy that one could imagine. And, the, and one of the most difficult to turnarounds, if you will, and you don't win them all. Like, you know, we went, I went through in there and realized that I had six weeks of cash flow. 
when I first started and 10,000, almost 10,000 employees, you know, really, really challenging, incredibly challenging. So uh, just learning the ropes as we are going through all of these different uh, skills, you know, I, I, I now know how a planned bankruptcy works because we had to plan one and do it. And I'd have lunch and learns with my bankruptcy lawyers. Um, it's like skills you never even want to know, but you have to learn. And, but what it does tell you is that you have the grit. If you're deciding, as any of the women that are out there that are listening to this or men, to make a career change, you really, if you look back and assess what your skills are, because you learn everywhere you go, and you learn different things and, and, and different skills along the way that are really transferable. When I first started in my career, you know, I went from teaching to fashion. Then I went from owning my own little repping company to being the president of sales. And then I, you know, and, and so I moved through the ranks and every single place I've been, I've been a little bit over my head. You know, I don't know if other people do, but I always have the dream before I go into a new job that I'm sitting there, I'm in the boardroom or I'm in a group meeting of somehow and everyone's talking and I have no idea what they're talking about. And, you know, and it's, it, you know, it's that imposter theory, right? Are you sitting there because you know what to do? Or are you sitting there because you're the best person that, that could have the job? Or did you just talk your way in the door? And I was always pretty good at talking my way in the door. But, you know, I realized that I'm going to be better than most people just by virtue of the skills that I've acquired along the way. I probably wouldn't be the only candidate that would be good in that role. But, you know, it, you really have to have some, some self-confidence, and going from this whole world at my later stage of my career and deciding that, okay, I'm going to now go into philanthropy. Let me just do that, right? I, I, I didn't like pick, okay, I'm going to go work for Susan G. Komen. Susan G. Komen sort of picked that, that this would happen to me, right? Because, you know, to have all of those circumstances and series of events happen that uh, where, you know, I was told about the, the role, the way that I was, et cetera, you kind of have to listen to the universe calling your name. So I decided that, that okay, let me learn. And I did a lot of, of um, informational gathering of what Komen did and understanding and read the 990s and every article that I could figure out about them. But still, you know, not knowing anything about philanthropy, I, I'd raised a lot of money myself personally when I had, after I had breast cancer, doing walks and runs. And I had a pink party every, every summer, which was like literally hosting a wedding. Um, but, you know, I did that for like five years. So I had raised significant amounts of money, but not at the level of running one of the, the largest charitable, charitable organizations that there are and with some of the best and biggest name recognition that there is. Right. So it was a, it was literally, I'll never forget one of my best friends when I told her I, I got this job and she said to me, okay, so on the first day, what the something do you know about, you know, philanthropy? I'm like, I don't know, but we'll see. Cause I really do think that my skill set is one that, you know, I've been able to amass amazing teams around me that know more than I do about the things that I don't know. And I've been able to, you know, put together um, strategies that are winning strategies. So I'm just going to do what I do. And I'm going to hire people around me that, that know more than me. And oh, oh, my God, here, most people know more than me. And that's okay. You have to be comfortable with that. You know, I'm never going to be a doctor. I have all these PhDs that, that work uh, with me now. 
and they're insane. They're so smart. And I, you know, at this point, am I going to learn everything there is to know about medicine? No, I'm not, but I am going to bring these people with me to the meetings that need where they need to present. And I don't, because I don't have that, uh, that street cred and I'm never gonna, no matter how good I get with it. We had, we have scientific advisors that are the rock stars of the world of breast cancer. And um, we have two that are our chairs of our scientific advisory board. And one is a, an unbelievable gentleman by the name of Dr. George Sledge that you've met. And Dr. Sledge is in charge of oncology at Stanford. And he's you know world renowned for breast cancer. And we had the opportunity very early on, probably a month or so into my tenure here, and that I was in um, Palo Alto where he lives and we were going to have dinner. And I thought, okay, I don't even know what I'm going to talk about with him because, you know, although I had my own breast cancer diagnosis, I don't, you know, it's, I'm not a doctor. And, and the person who was in this chair before me was, right? So he, I don't know what he was expecting or not. So we had a really nice dinner and really, you know, easy conversation, which was great. And then he says to me, you know, listen, if you want, I can give you like a little tutelage about all the medical terms and the, you know, and I looked at him and I said, okay, let me explain how that's going to go, George. It would be like me learning Chinese and speaking with the highest levels of the government, dealing with them and trying to negotiate. First of all, no one's going to understand the fashion girl over here knows anything about medicine, Right. So I, why don't I do what I do really well, which is bringing the, the, the brightest talent and, and the motivation and the, and the strategy together. And then why don't you come with me to these meetings that I need? Because of course they're gonna believe you. And he said, okay, that works. And we have had a really successful relationship and he's been so amazing and coming to different meetings with me and bringing it over the goal line because they know that what he has to say is, is true and real and authentic. And, you know, even if I tried to learn Chinese and speak at the highest levels of the government, you know, I'm never going to get it right. You know, you'd have to spend years and years and years. So I'm going to, I, and I think this is also for all of you, when you are, have the opportunity to lead through something that you're not sure of, or that you don't know a whole lot about, then you just bring in the right people and just make sure that you get your strategies in place that are, and, and, you know, have other people help you with that. Right. And not being afraid to ask for help is I think one of the strongest characteristics of a transformational leader, um, which Polly, you are for sure. And, you know, one of the themes as I listen to your story that really strikes me is the fact that you were incredibly humble by admitting, I don't know everything and admitting there might be other people that are just as deserving to sit in this chair as I am, but you were really willing to learn. And I think one of the most defining characteristics of the most successful leaders that I've ever met is that they are lifelong learners. They recognize they're never going to know everything. They Mm -hmm. don't ever pretend like they have all the answers and they're open to guidance, input, feedback, direction from other people that they really trust. And so throughout your journey, you were learning. You learned about operations. You learned about sales. You were entrepreneur. You were operator. You worked in corporate. You were... Uh, a leader of some of the most well-known fashion brands in the world. And you built those brands. And 
Then you moved into private equity, which talk about a, a yeah, that was a shift. That was a probably a, that was a big shift. That's a huge shift, yeah. right? So even within fashion, you advanced your career by always being open to opportunity and learning. And then you did this big shift into private equity, recognizing that you were going to build an entire area of of expertise within this private equity firm around consumer goods, but you were new to private equity and yet you moved into that role knowing that you had a lot to learn, but you also had a lot to offer. And today you're CEO of a critically important nonprofit, Susan G. Komen. And so, you know, as those years transgressed and as you were learning and absorbing and taking those lessons and applying them to the opportunities in front of you, what do you think drew you to this quite different opportunity four years ago at Susan G. Komen, other than your personal experience? What was it about that that you said, okay, you know, I'm going to leave fashion, I'm going to leave private equity, and I'm going to go into philanthropy? Well, you know, one of one of the things is that I have had a lot of background in dealing with owner-led organizations, if you will, right? And and that is, that is its own set of rules, right? Because what I have found, and and I have I worked with um, Max Asria at BCBG, Shelley Siegel at Laundry by Shelley Siegel. I worked with Doug Charney, who was his own bucket of crazy, but really a smart, smart guy um, at, at American Apparel. Uh, I worked with, um, I consulted with Kanye West and, and then I had the opportunity of, of working with Nancy Brinker here at Coleman. And what they all have in common, which I find really, really interesting is that the, the rule, they don't, and they don't, how can I say this diplomatically? They don't believe that rules apply a lot to themselves, right? And for people that have achieved greatness in a lot of ways, they don't follow rules. They they don't. The rules are probably good for other people, but not necessarily. And I, I get that because, you know, when we were building BCBG, if we had asked people, should we start this new thing called contemporary, right? Remember, because contemporary didn't even exist before BCBG came into to effect, right? Because there was like, if you looked at the categories, then there was Missy, which was old. And then there was um, there was designer, which everyone still is designer. You understand designer. And then there was junior. So you, if you fell between, you had to be like young to wear a junior and old to wear a Missy. And there was nothing squarely in between that was more of a mindset. So we built it. But if we'd asked people, you know, can we, because there wasn't the departments set up at that point. It was a grind every single day to make a change. So you have to decide that you're going to build something and that you're, that you're, that you're okay with breaking some rules. And I'm I'm a I come from a long line of rule breakers, so you know I'm very comfortable in that arena. And I don't and I feel like you got to bring new ideas to the forefront. And a lot of what has worked for me in working with founders is that they do they they come up with some of the most creative, crazy things that. But you know many of them have worked because they wouldn't be where they are if they hadn't been successful doing it. So you got to give you know mad respect for that. Not necessarily the same way you do it. But understanding that that's that that mindset creates um, a little bit of an opening, I think, because, you know, I, I am one that really always tries to, to push the envelope quite a bit. And I'm really comfortable living in chaos. I totally am. Um, you know, there can be fires burning all around me and maybe because I'm a cancer survivor, 
and you know, I've had my life threatened. Okay. So we'll just handle one fire at a time and we'll put them out and we'll move on. But you know, that, that does become part of your DNA. And I think that's been a, a, you know, just a wonderful training ground for knowing how to deal with things right between teaching and that, I think you can get along with most, almost anyone. And you figure out when, when is the right timing for things, right? Because people do their natural bent and, and, you know, you, you move on. But I, I, I remember so distinctly when I was at Speedo, there was this young man, um, I even remember his name and I've had thousands and thousands of employees and his name was Dan. And Dan was telling me when I first met him that he, that he got a, a degree in entrepreneurship. And that was the first time I'd heard that. It was years ago before entrepreneurship became like the quite, you know, the it degree or one of the it degrees. And I said to him, okay. And I made this kid, I, I tortured this kid because I, I loved the idea of it. And I said to him, okay, we have some problems at our the senior leadership team. And I want you to hear like two problems. And then I want you to come back. And I would like you to tell us as an entrepreneur and with all the training that you just got in college, and I think it was USC or something, it was some, you know, it was a genuine program. I'd like you to, 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 to figure out how you would solve the problem. And I'd like you to report it back to the ELT. And, uh, and he was like, well, okay, like, I, I think I completely froze him, but he had this unique <laughs> opportunity and it wasn't exactly the way that we would have done it, but it was a really fresh approach. And I thought, okay, and, and, and since then, and that moment in time, which was quite a few years ago for me, it was like 15 years ago now, I want to make sure that if people have ideas that they are surfaced and that you bring this fresh perspective and entrepreneurship into the world, right? And I try to do it. So, you know, but as you get older, you get more jaded and you think you know more than you do in a lot of ways. And it's, you know, well, it's the way it's always been done sort of mentality. And unless you are in a complete turnaround where you can break up every way that it's always been done or you're in the middle of a COVID disaster and you could break up every way that it's always been done and do it differently. You know, that's when you, you have to make those decisions as you go along. Yeah. That's um, really smart insight. Thank you so much. You know, there's something you said early in our conversation that I want to come back to. You said, you know, I left teaching because girls got to eat. And even in fashion, I took out a $5,000 loan to begin my own rep company. And for me, that was a lot of money. And, you know, I worked like crazy to pay off that loan and, and be successful. Warren Buffett has a recommendation that really resonated with me. He said, if you want to learn to play the guitar, you want to write a book, or you want to help kids uh, in poor countries, first, go make a lot of money. Then after that, you can go focus on these things. And it feels like in some ways, that's a defining characteristic of your choices too. You had an opportunity to play in private equity and in fashion and be a teacher. And, you know, you've built companies and you've worked for founders and you've done all these amazing things. But now at the end of your career, you've actually taken a pretty significant step back in your own personal compensation in mm -hmm. order to uh, do what really matters to you. So you, in some ways, are, you know, focusing on your mission, your purpose after having made a whole lot of money so that you can focus on what really matters. 
But well, what's you, your perspective on what Warren said? Uh, you know, listen, you you have you have obligations, you know, in your life, right? And you have to make sure that you can fulfill those obligations. And then after that, you know, all all bets are off. But you know, I also had the um, the challenge of of losing a lot during having breast cancer because you're not in a position where you can work, and you know that doesn't last very long. I mean, you know, you, you think about not working, and you think about you know this was also during the 2007 recession, and you know you can't get sick in this country because it it's very very challenging, right? So, um, I, I guess it's it's just really what is important to you. Right. It goes back to what is important to you. Certainly I have obligations. You have to put your kids in college. You have to, you know, have to put food on the table and all of those things. Um, but you know, I, I want to and wanted to get to a point where I could do something that was more meaningful. And regardless of um how much you make or don't make, this is this is enriching. And you know, this this gives me so much more than I from a than from a monetary standpoint because you know I'm I'm able to do it and certainly live fine you know and spend more time uh, working and you know at this point I could decide okay I just want to not I just want to go play tennis but I don't uh, you know I still play tennis all the time but I want to I want to do this until we can figure out how my daughters don't ever have to be worried about it. All right. One last question for you, Paula. Again, so grateful that you shared your career journey and the lessons learned uh, with all of us. Thank you so much. And along that journey, I know I have certainly benefited from your advice, your guidance, your input, your wisdom, but others must have also shaped you and helped provide insight for you. Mm -hmm. So what is some of the most powerful leadership advice that you've received that you want to share with our listeners today? Use humor. <laughs> because, you know, I, if, I, if I can get a good laugh, and oh my God, you know, if I can get a good laugh in during the day or cause a good laugh, I'm really happy. So, you know, humor is, is a way, and I guess that, that when I say that, it really is touching people on a human level. And humor does that, right? So that's why that works. But it's also, it's being kind. It's having kindness it's and and believe me, I've had to lay off thousands of people in my career, especially in turnarounds. And you know, in in no matter how you slice it, that that's miserable. Um, so you know, when you're trying to figure out a way to do things with kindness, it may not be um, maybe anathema to the thought process of you know being a turnaround person and, and using kindness. But you you just try every day to do the right thing, do it for the right reasons, and do it with kindness. And then if you can laugh great. And I got to tell you, I have laughed more under your leadership than I have ever in my whole career. You are funny and witty and clever, <laughs> but kind. And um, someone that well, I guess I'm doing it right. Then. Yes. Someone I am honored to call a mentor as well as a friend. And Paula, I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. So my pleasure, Linda. Thank you for joining Leadership Global, a podcast for and about unstoppable women stepping into courage, claiming their power, and embracing bold leadership. Join us each week as we talk to a collection of inspirational women changing the world and tackling the most pressing issues we're facing today as women and as leaders. See you next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.